Truly, as a society, we are at a moment of crisis. Now, that's not to paint a generic bleak picture, but we need to look at the data. Because if we look all around us, we have people that are lost, that feel like just people floating through the abyss. People with no sense of purpose, no sense of meaning, no sense of identity. Unless we think that that is just simply conjecture, we need to look at the evidence, the statistics, and the data, and they bear a very startling image. Because if we look at the entire U.S. population, the total percentage of those that identify as someone who is depressed or struggling with anxiety is up to 19.1%. If we look at the demographic from those who are ages 18 through 24, that is up almost at 50% of the entire demographic. And even if we look at over time, from the years 2005 through 2017, if we look at the rise in those that are struggling with depression and anxiety, it's up almost 69% from those just few years. Truly, this is startling. And if you think about it, we should live in a day and an age where this isn't possible. Because if you look at the reality, we shouldn't have trouble with anxiety or depression. We have all sorts of control. We have ways and methods of going around and determining our life that we've never had before. And if you look at the reality of our world, it says that it has every single thing that it needs to make us happy. And yet we're so depressed. We're so anxious. We're struggling. We're at a moment of crisis. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of an enlightened culture and generation, what is missing? What has gone wrong? Why are we here, right here, and right now? To begin to answer that question, we should look at the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is actually speaking to a particular person of importance. He's speaking to Cyrus, who is the king's anointed. And Cyrus serves as a historical, is historically significant figure because he is one that conquered the entire known world at that time. And what's more, he released the Israelites from captivity, that he was able to restore them and to kind of set them to the side, to give them what, back what was theirs, their ancestral heritage. And so he's actually a very powerful and significant figure. And as we're looking through this reading, it tells us in very vivid detail that he is significant, that he is very strong and very powerful, that the Lord subdued nations before him, that he had kings running in his service, that he opened doors for him, and that he unbarred gates. The truly Cyrus was unparalleled at that time. And yet as he goes through, the Lord is telling him about all of these things that he's done, but then he also tells him exactly why he's there. That he first tells him that he is there in this position of power. He's enjoying all of the successes that he has enjoyed because the Lord wants him to restore the house of Israel. That he wants them to be set in the right place. And that is why he's bestowed upon him a title of the, being the anointed one. Even though Cyrus is a Gentile himself, he's not a part of the house of Israel. So he's someone that would be thought of to be on the outside. But the second reason is that he wants the Lord to be known. That he is the Lord, there is no other. And therefore, through Cyrus's reign and rule, the Lord wants to make him very aware that he has given Cyrus all of the success so that he can go forward and proclaim the name of the Lord. So he's telling him, he's given him an identity, a title. He's given him all of this prestige and all of this splendor, not just for his own good, but for the good of the people. 
And so this is a beautiful testimony to the fact that the Lord is treasuring the house of Israel, but also that he elevates someone to help restore that house and to restore them back to their rightful place. He gives him an identity. We move on and we continue with St. Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. As he's beginning this letter at the very outset, it's something that's very typical of Paul to kind of give this benediction and this blessing. That he's looking at the people and he's giving thanks to God for all of the results and all of the things that have happened and developed in this time. And yet, as he's addressing the church in Thessalonica, he's addressing on behalf of himself, upon, and as well as Savanus and Timothy as well, because he wants them to be aware of all of those that have shared in their success. But this benediction, as he's giving thanks to God for everything that has happened and greeting them in the name of the Lord, he tells them about all of the ways that he is grateful to God, that he gives thanks to God because they have taken the name of the Lord to be their own. And what's more, they've taken the word of God and adopted it. And so it's not enough to say that they heard the gospel, but in fact they started to adopt it, they started to follow it, and they made it part of their life, that they're living by it in every way. And so we're told that they are enduring because of Jesus, and in fact they are not just hearing the word of God, but they are hearing it with courage and with conviction, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, as he's writing this exposition at the very beginning of his letter, he's telling about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but he's giving thanks to God because the church in Thessalonica is adopting the word and the gospel, and they're responding in very vivid color. And finally, we move to the gospel according to Matthew. This particular account is a result of the last three weeks of parables. If we remember back to those three weeks, we know that each of the parables were directed at a particular audience, that they were directed at the religious leadership at the time, that it was directed at the chief priests and the elders of the people because they were so corrupt and so jaded within their hearts. So he's trying to get them to convert. He's trying to shake some sense into them, even though they largely can't hear that message. They aren't really convinced. So what do they do? Well, they decide that they're going to try to take Jesus down, that they're going to do something to discredit him and to put him to the side, to put him away so that they don't have to listen to his message anymore. This is how corrupt and jaded they are. So they set before him what they think is an impossible task, that they're going to ask him to choose between the path of religious, the sort of religious nature at that time, or choose loyalty to the government. But notice at the very beginning, they think they're doing themselves well. They start to butter Jesus up and they start to really praise him at the beginning so that they feel like he's going to fall even easier. But Jesus is so quick to note and notice what they're doing. And so they ask this question after they've tried to butter him up and after they've tried to sing his praises to him. So they ask this question, who are we supposed to pay the census tax or not? Now, on the surface, it might just seem like an inconsequential detail to daily life, but what they are doing is actually very brilliant on their part because they're trying to get Jesus to choose between that loyalty to the Jewish tradition and then loyalty to the government as well, that they're trying to put them together so that he has to choose one or the other. And if he chooses one, then the other is going to be upset. That if he chooses, yes, they should pay the census tax, is going to anger the Pharisees and the Jewish community because they feel that they shouldn't have to pay that tax at all. And so they're going to push back and they're actually going to rebel and Jesus is going to be discredited and fall out of favor with the Pharisees and with the Jewish community. So that's one side. 
But if he said that they shouldn't pay the census tax, then in fact he's going to anger the Herodians, those that are very loyal to the government and very faithful to it. And that it's going to look like he's committing treason because he's telling them to not follow the government at the time and those in authority. And Jesus knows both of these sides very well. So what does he do? He takes a Roman coin from them and he asks them a simple question, whose inscription is on this? And he, they say, well, Caesar's image is on it, but whose inscription? It's also Caesar's. Then he gives this simple response in his answer. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That he navigates right between the two and he avoids both pitfalls and he wants to show them just how important and how excellent he is at understanding their malice, their duplicity, their hypocrisy, but ultimately how they lack faith. And as he does that, he settles on this identity. Because if we think about it, they did have money at the time, and it did bear Caesar's image and its inscription. And so that belonged to Caesar. But then the question that should naturally follow, if we're giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, then whose is God? What is his possession? What are we to render back to him? We know if we go back to the book of Genesis that all of creation is the Lord's, that everything falls under his dominion and under his creation. But there's something that is more particular in this way. Because if we see the creation of man, whose image are we created in? Well, naturally, we're told that we're created in God's image and likeness. And therefore, no matter who we are, no matter if we're inside or outside of the church, we bear God's image, that we bear his design, we bear his likeness, we have his inscription on our hearts. And therefore, our identity should be founded in the Lord. And think about this reality. Because we live in a day and an age that loves to boast an identity. That it loves to boast about positions of power and prestige. That it tells people to seek after all these positions of authority so that we can have something to boast about. And so often that is what people attach their identity to. Or even at times it can be to attach it to different things that don't really matter. Maybe just different positions of leadership that one might have. Or even just the popularity that one might have. Because we're grasping for straws. We're trying to find our identity in the midst of the world and even in the abyss. And many times we see a world that is struggling. Because notice... All of the things that are professed to make us happy, all of the things that are out there to make us fulfilled in this life and make us peaceful and secure, that as many of those things as the world might say that it has, it leaves us empty. And we see that because the data is not lying to us, but the data is telling us that we live in a generation that is so depressed and so anxious. But why is that? Well, on the same stroke that as we see these things on the rise, we start to, we've seen faith on the decline for so long. And this is not, by, this is actually very much correlated because faith gives us not only what we're supposed to believe, but it gives us the very core of who we are. It gives us a sense of identity. It gives us purpose. It gives us mission. It gives us hope. It doesn't just let us wander around and try to determine who we are. Because the reality is the world tells us to do that, but it doesn't give us the resources. It doesn't give us the tools. It doesn't give us what is essential to discover the very depths and the truths about our nature and about who we are, how God has instituted us, how he's given us a title, and how he's given us a plan. And he's made us an important part of creation. 
If we lose sight of that, then we are going to be anxious. We're going to be depressed. We're going to feel that we're just floating around in the world that doesn't care. And likely, we'll think that's true. What happens if we settle for God's identity that he places upon us? What if we truly see what that is? Because if we understand what God's identity, what he gives us as he stamps his image and his inscription on us, it's nothing less than being a son or a daughter of God. Unless we think that's inconsequential or not all that important, think about the reality. Because if God is adopting us as his sons and daughters, that means we are his heirs, his heritage, that he wants to give to us everything that we need, that he looks upon us with the fondness of a father. And that is something that we can never deserve on our own. But think about the reality. Because if he's giving us that title, my brothers and sisters, we should rejoice. Because that means that he's got a plan for our lives. He's got a purpose. He's got mission. He's got a sense of accomplishment that is there. He's got a plan that is going to lead us to happiness, to fulfillment. It's going to lead us to discover everything about who we are and discover in even, even deeper ways what that means. But the world doesn't know that. The world might know about this identity, but it tells us that it's just one amongst many. It tells us to push it to the side, to live as if it doesn't matter, because it doesn't want that ability to look at God as Father. And it, in fact, thinks that that's an encumbrance. It tells us that that is oppressing our freedom to determine who we are, that it takes away our freedom, and it takes away our ability to choose. But if we look at the reality of what our identity as as God's sons and daughters it doesn't take away our freedom. It gives us the fullness of freedom. It doesn't take away our ability to choose. It gives us the ability to choose well. It doesn't take away our sense of purpose or meaning in life, but it gives us the fullest degree of those things. Tell that to the world that so largely needs those things. Tell that to a world that is so long as professed that it has true freedom, true and unadulterated freedom. But that freedom has only led to a place of ruin. That it's led a generation to depression, to anxiety. It has not led this generation to a good place. And that is the reality that we struggle with. But the thing is, we have the answer. That we know that the light of faith is going to illuminate our hearts. This is going to take us through the darkness and it is going to lead us to a place of wonderful light. And that is simply understanding that God has bestowed upon us the identity of being his sons and daughters. Now that's not something small, but it's something that's huge. It's beautiful. It's beneficial. It's something that we're not worthy of and yet we're bestowed it freely. That the Lord wants to call us his sons and daughters, and he gives us the ability to call us his father, or to call him our father. But what does that mean right here and right now? What is that challenging us to do in our life of faith? First, a question. If someone asked you who you are, if they asked you to identify yourself, what would you say right after your name? Now, many of us might start to go through our titles, our positions, where we work, what we do. Maybe we'll identify with our family. But what about being a child of God? Would that be in first place? Because so often in this world, it's treated as just another title, something inconsequential. But if we truly believe that we are God's sons and daughters, something that we're not worthy of ourselves, then in fact, we're going to boast of that, that that is going to be number one when we identify ourselves, that I am a beloved son or daughter of God, and that changes everything. But so many times, we're not quick to believe that. 
because we live in a day and an age that tells us to identify in other ways. It tells us to make ourselves popular, to make ourselves known, to put ourselves out on social media, to look like we are important and we have followers. But at the end of the day, what does that lead to? Well, the statistics are telling us that leads to emptiness, that leads to a place of hopelessness and despair. But if we lead with being sons and daughters of God, then we're going to know just how important we are to God our Father. That we don't have to create this sense of importance and this sense of meaning in our life, because that sense of importance and meaning should already be there. That if we truly believe that we have been given an identity that was designed for us from the beginning of time, then that's going to give us that sense of importance that we long for, because we know that we have a God who dies for us and continues to seek us each and every day. But then the second thing, if we truly believe that if we, that we are God's sons and daughters, do we try to live up to that identity? Do we see the high and lofty calling that that is? Because many times we may live as if that is inconsequential or we're indifferent to that title. But if we understand, it's going to change life. It's going to encourage us on. This is going to tell us about the importance of prayer and relationship with our Father. That it's going to tell us about the importance of following the commandments, the different rules and teachings and regulations. That those aren't encumbering freedom. Those are leading us to the fullness of life that we all seek. That the world is embarrassed, and in fact it's jealous and envious of what we can have in our faith. But if we truly live this out, then we're going to find ourselves being fulfilled. Then we're going to find ourselves being fulfilled to capacity even. But this isn't to say that life won't always be easy either. Because if we live out God's identity as sons and daughters, it means that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of things that we cannot understand, that the Lord still claims us as his own. That it gives us the power, it gives us the strength, it gives us the determination to do what we ought. And it gives us the ability to persevere to the very end and to enjoy our heavenly reward. Because if we look back at Cyrus, he was given a title, but he wasn't given an easy way to go. That he had to go out and conquer lands and nations and all of these things to restore the house of Israel. But he was never treated as just an instrument or an inconsequential detail in the grand scheme of all of creation. But instead, he was given a celebrated role. He was given a title. He was brought into relationship with God. And it should be the same with each and every one of us. That even as life may not be easy, it may not always seem like everything's handed out to us very easily, that we have to work very hard and very diligently, that nonetheless we are given that joy and that hope that one day we will enjoy the heritage that is ours in the kingdom of heaven. And that is by our identity, by being called God's sons and daughters. But then the final point of encouragement that this identity isn't just something that is withheld and reserved just simply for us in the walls of the church, but God wants to call each and every one of our brothers and sisters his sons and daughters, especially those that are furthest away from him at this time. But are we so bold to profess our identity? Are we so bold as to tell that we've got a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of mission in our world, even as it flounders and wanders off into the darkness? that we have what it takes. We've got a relationship with God our Father, and that truly influences and builds up everything that we long for and everything that we desire. Because if we truly believe that, then we're going to want to tell our brothers and sisters as well that there's so many people in our lives that need the message of the gospel, that need to be brought into communion with God and even with the church, that they want to experience that sense of purpose and meaning and mission in the world as well, but they want to also experience what it's like to be God's son and daughter. 
And it's up to us to go out to a world that's in so desperate need of that identity and to tell them about the way that God adopts us as his sons and daughters. The Lord tells us that simple line, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. My brothers and sisters, we are God's children. We have his identity. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be depressed. We don't need to feel as if we have to go out and figure this life out. Because if we do, we will deplete ourselves. We'll find ourselves empty. But if we truly believe that we are God's sons and daughters, we'll find ourselves filled to abundance, truly happy and living lives that are filled with meaning, with passion, and with purpose. May each of us discover in new ways what God's identity is for each and every one of us as his sons and as his daughters.